0: Well, I've been thinking about how hard we work to make sure that we look good in front of each other uh, as people. And if you take a look at my Instagram account uh, right here, I know it's kind of washed out, but um, I put that slide together myself. What do you think? I know. It's like action-packed. If you look at my Instagram account, what you'll see is you'll find me in action. You got me jumping. You have our family. Uh, There's... um, there's us in an ocean, there's me with a don't hassle me I'm local shirt, which is a Bill Murray shirt, and in front, that's like the wall, right? And if you go to my wall, you'll see me in action. What you won't find on my Instagram is a picture of Nikki and I arguing. You will not find me in sweatpants, laying horizontal on the couch, playing a game on my phone. You won't find anything depressing or discouraging at all. Why is that? And I don't think I consciously do it or conscientiously do it, but on some level, I do it so I look good to you. I do it so I look good to you. And why do we do these things? Why Why do we go through such efforts to make ourselves look good? Well, because we care what people think. We want people to know us, notice us. We desire people to see us in a certain way, whether it's happy or successful or whatever. And here's what I know. The human desire for approval has massive implications for everybody. And Jesus, during his time on earth, he had a really long speech, and it was called the Sermon on the Mount. And he said a lot of important things about the approval of others that help us to put it into perspective. And we're going to look at a section of it. And in this section, Jesus talks to his disciples and a big crowd of people that are listening. He talks about three things. He talks about engaging in three spiritual practices. That's giving prayer and fasting. and in doing so he begins to help us to develop a heavenly perspective on seeking the approval of others. And he does this too for the price of one thing. Uh, and Jesus often does this. He'll be talking about how to do something, but then he's also uh, so he's teaching us about giving and prayer and fasting, but he's also teaching us about how to break free from the approval of others. And his message is simple. Jesus cares about your freedom. And what we discover is that Jesus cares, he offers freedom and disciplines, but also Jesus offers us freedom from seeking the approval of others. Think of how much of our time as a culture, as a society is spent trying to figure out how others feel about us or making sure we look good in front of other people. Jesus understood this. And if you're honest with yourself, and if I'm honest with myself, we have to think about this too. So let's jump in. And Ingrid did a great job of reading in, in, verse, uh, in chapter six, verse one of Matthew. Jesus gives us his thesis statement. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And if you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven, basically meaning your reward is the, the, the praise that you receive on earth. Now, again, this verse is Jesus' thesis statement. He's saying, do good things for the right reasons. Don't just do things so that other people notice you, so that you can be seen by others. And basically, he's asking a question, what's your motivation? He's saying this. Another way to ask it is this. Do you want to grow into an actual good person? Or do you just want to be seen as a good person? think about it for. Me. Do you actually want to become the good person you aspire to or do you just want to be seen, perceived as becoming a good person? Every day on my social media feed, I see people signaling to the world their virtues and everything that they believe other people should know about them. They signal whether it is moral or immoral to think, or how to think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There are opinions on right and wrong for the political candidates that are starting to form around the election this year. Uh, There are opinions on whether a certain billionaire who owns a certain electric car company should own a certain social media site and then rebrand it X. Um, They even give us their opinions about whether or not almond milk is immoral. And the problem with signaling in this way on social media or this public thing is that it creates a false sense of goodness. It gives people the impression that we've actually done something to move the needle on the problem that we see, whether it's caring for the poor or the oppressed or the hurting. And, it, and, and, and at the heart of it, it depends entirely on people hearing your, your message and then perceiving you in a certain way it creates a false sense that you've actually done something and since the advent of social media in the last 10 years the ability to put your opinions out there for your followers to see uh, with all the opinions you've seen in the last seven days last seven weeks last seven years we really haven't seen massive social change we've seen a lot of awareness massive social awareness on the problems we're more hyper aware of the problems but we really haven't moved the needle have we you see the same amount of violence happening in our communities. You see the same amount of poor who continue to be oppressed by not only the systems, uh, but also just uh, by others in, in particular ways. It's still happening. And awareness, awareness of the injustices of our society actually uh, didn't revolve or involve actually people engaging, actually doing something about what they see. It's almost like by posting, you feel like you've done something. And this is one of the failures of my generation and the generation younger. We feel that if we posted about it, then we did something about it. We feel that if we are aware of something and we feel bad about something, then we've actually done something about it. I'm here to tell you, I'm not sure if that's true. Um, there's There's a guy by the name of Frederick Dale Bruner. He translates this verse this way. He says, watch out that you do not do your righteousness in front of other people in order to be a theater to them. So Jesus' statement here, his thesis statement, as he gets going, he just gets going, his opening statement is important. Do you actually want to see or do the good you speak about? Or do you just want to signal that you're aware of things that should be done that other people should do? And in a way, Jesus, from the very get-go, with this group of about, they think there was about 5,000 people there watching him, the same way he challenged them is the same way he challenges us today. If you want to see good in the world, do it. But don't do it in such a way that seeks the approval of others. And for certain, don't just make people aware that you're aware of what's wrong and not even engaged to begin with. Don't, and this, if Jesus were to phrase this a different way, he would say, don't just signal that you're a good person to other people. Other people are fickle. Their opinions about you will change. They will not have the same opinion about you in two weeks that they do today. Seeking their approval is a never-ending chore. It's a treadmill. And you will die never achieving fully the approval of others. So don't put on an act. And Jesus says, do it for me. So there's a thesis. And he gives us three examples He gives us three examples for us to look at. We're going to look at each one of them. Uh, The first one is this. Um, The first one centers on giving. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have to receive their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Basically, like I just don't, like it's, you know, you're just not really keeping track of it. So that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So here Jesus is saying not if you give, he's saying when you give. He's saying when you give. There's an expectation that Jesus followers, and if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, then you're off the hook on this one. But there's an expectation that Jesus followers will be generous, not just with their time and their talents, but Jesus followers will be generous with their financial resources. Why? Why? Because Jesus wants his followers to be generous? Because it demonstrates that he is real. And generosity is countercultural. In a world of greed, one of the things that you can do, and one of the things that I can do to set yourself apart as someone who has been touched by Jesus, someone who's experienced life with Jesus, one of the things that you can do is learn to be above and beyond generous. But within this, Within this, there's a two for for the price of one lesson. Jesus challenges his followers. He says, give generously because it shows you're one of my followers, but don't do it just for the admiration of others. You know, we see this in the business world a lot. Some of you are in the business world, and you know what I'm talking about. There's an author by the name of Ethan Richardson. He makes this observation about the business world. He says this, companies are now attempting to outdo each other with major acts of generosity. But there's a catch. They'll do good as long as they can make sure their customers know about it. Of course, we should commend companies for doing the right thing, but Jesus wanted us to do the right thing with the right motive to please God and not to impress others. Now, I'm sure you have your favorite example. My favorite example comes from a little publicly held corporation called Honda. And I love, I love commercials. I love just to sit there and drink in what I should be, what I don't need, you know? Uh, just like 10 hours at a time, like, you know? Uh, I love Honda commercials because for the last, I don't know, six to 10 years, and I'm sorry if some of you have participated and helped create these commercials. Uh, it's not a slight on you. This is, at a, this is at a executive level decision. This is not you. I'm not taking away your bread. We have one person here, and the thousands that are here, that uh, works directly on commercials. Uh, So I don't know. I never checked with her, so I'm not singling her out or him. Uh, So there's these Honda commercials. And maybe you know what they are. They're called Honda's Random Acts of Helpfulness. Okay? Oh, no. And in these random acts of helpfulness, they'll do this thing where they'll be like, Oh, I couldn't afford my my baggage at the airport, and they'll be like, here, let me pay the $40 for you to check your bag so you can see your son, or whatever. Uh, or they'll be like, man, this this nice uh, suburban, monocultural, uh, you know, one-race, new-build uh, neighborhood didn't have a playground where the kids could play. And then Honda will come in and be like, we're going to put up a slide and a swing. And and we'll get one of those, those, those really good, multi-looking, rubber bouncy things for people to bounce on. And the thing with the thing, and they have the merry-go. And they'll, they'll, we built a playground. And so they'll spend 25K on a new playground. What I love about these random acts of helpfulness is they'll spend 25 on the K, uh, 25K on the playground, and they'll spend about two million on the ad spend. So they spend 25,000 actually doing the random act of helpfulness, but they'll spend two million letting everyone know that they did a nice thing for $25,000. I love that. I love that. Anyway, so uh, this is how we apply this. Jesus makes it clear that as you're pursuing the full life, the flourishing life, the flourishing life is connected to generosity. It is connected to giving. And Jesus expects that his followers will learn a behavior which is being generous And generous with our money, not just our time and our talent, but also with our treasure. That we will learn to be generous. So I'd encourage you, if you're not in the habit of tithing, give 10% of your income back to God. This is a great way to start. But second, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that for you to experience the flourishing life, you need to experience the freedom of not caring about what other people think about your giving. So that, you know, so when you do this, you're giving in a way where you're training your mind to care more about what God thinks about your gift, not what other people think about your gift. And if you can learn to do this, if you can learn to be above and beyond generous and do so in a way you're saying, God, this is a gift to you. It's actually cutting into my lifestyle, my comfort. And as I give it to you, I, I, I do it for your approval. If you can learn that skill, if you can learn that skill, what you will find is you will experience more freedom from the approval of others. Jesus gives a second illustration. And it's about prayer. He says, And when you go and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you go to pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So Jesus uses the dreaded H word, hypocrites. Uh, Now, our English word comes from a Greek word, uh, hypocrites. And this uh, was an ancient theater term uh, where performers in a play, okay, they would wear masks, which would allow them to play multiple characters. Do you see See where this is going? Author Eugene Peterson, uh, he did a scripture translation of these verses, and here's what he says. It's actually similar to the other translation we read. He says this. He says, When you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Again, Jesus is not against spiritual acts in public. The disciples wrote that Jesus prayed in public. Uh, Often Jesus went to a local synagogue and he read scripture in public. Jesus praised a widow who went to give all that she had to the local treasury She put her money in the treasury at the temple. That was done in front of people, and he praised her in front of people, which means that he actually had to see her doing it in public, okay? So don't don't get it twisted here, as the kids might say. Jesus isn't against spiritual uh, spiritual acts in public. He's not prohibiting these things, but he is showing us something about the idea of maturity and freedom. Here's something about spiritual maturity. It's impossible for your spiritual maturity to outpace your emotional maturity. Let me say that again. It's impossible for your spiritual maturity to outpace your emotional maturity. What do I mean? This means that you can do everything right to appear like you know God, to appear spiritual. But what you actually know and believe about God is 100% revealed in how you act and how you treat people. Let me give you another way of thinking about this. We all know people that claim to be spiritual, whether it's Christian spirituality, Buddhist spirituality, other forms of spirituality. They claim to be spiritual and and they're terrible people to be around. This this present company excluded And the litmus test for spiritual growth, true spiritual growth, according to Jesus, how do you know if you're really spiritually growing? It's not what we know. It's what we do with what we know. And this is the great challenge for late modernity, quasi-post-Christendom. Everything is spiritual culture, especially in Los Angeles. Christians and non-Christians alike, spiritual people who are, even spiritual people who are not Christians, suffer from this as much as Christians do. And the problem is this, generally speaking, we don't have an information problem. We have an application problem, meaning many of us know the ways to live. As we lean into Jesus, we know the ways Jesus is asking us to live, but we have trouble applying it. And what we discover is that if we attempt to fake our spiritual growth or put on that we're more spiritual, this is why he uses the word hypocrites, because he senses there's something fake going on here. What we do, if we attempt to fake spiritual growth, if you project growth for the main reason or motivation being that others will see you, that reveals your immaturity. Your true self will be revealed. And you might be able to appear religious before others. You may be able to appear spiritual before others for a certain amount of time. But it doesn't impress God. And it reveals your immaturity or my immaturity. And so what Jesus is saying here is there's no way around it. If you want to be a person who is in touch with the living God, who is in touch with the spiritual world through Jesus, you and I have to do the work. There's no way around it. Before We have to go before God. And earnestly, we have to do the hard work of developing our private life with God. And that is the way you get to flourishing. And that's the way you get to the flourishing and full life that Jesus offers. You do it in such a way that no one might actually see it. Uh, there's a final illustration, which... Um, I'm going to talk about... Ingrid didn't read it, but I'm just going to throw it in here. Um, It's this. We jump ahead. There's the Lord's Prayer in the middle. And then in verse 16, he talks about fasting. It's a great illustration. He says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face. That's a way of saying, take a shower today. Okay, just get cleaned up. Like, okay. And put oil on your head, wash your face, blah, blah. And so that you will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father in heaven who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, basically fasting can mean many different things. In these verses, primarily it meant restraining from food, but fasting can include many things. It can include coffee, caffeine, eating out, social media. I fast every year during Lent from celery. Uh, And the idea is that when we remove certain things from our lives, it helps us to bring clarity. And it, it reveals our dependence on that thing. And so when you remove it from your life, it helps us to bring clarity so we can discern and understand God's will. We better know what we're supposed to do. And by the way, if you're at a crossroads in your life, if you're trying to discern something, should I stay with this person? Should I break up with this person? Should I leave my job? Should I get a new job? God, I think that I'm doing something that's not good behind the scenes, and I don't know what it, if, I, if I should keep going. Discernment can be found sometimes by fasting. And it, um, it, when you fast, it creates that dependence. Like I said, so if you're at a crossroads, if you're thinking about discerning or you have a big decision in front of you or you don't know what to do, sometimes the practice of fasting, restraining from something that you generally rely on, creates a dependence. And for some reason, God honors us. He speaks to us. And, you know, in a city that's full of indulgence, fasting is not popular. Fasting is popular in terms of um, in, uh, creating a, a, a certain way of looking. Uh, they, we do it for dietary things and what, and what have you. But, like, there is something spiritual about fasting. And so that, that's the plug for fasting. But the point is this. When Jesus is saying, he said, when you're fasting, when you're cutting things out of your life so you can hear from me, who is it about? Is it all about you? And is all, all about you by making sure everyone around you knows it's about you? He uses the phrase disfiguring your face. And he's like, grow up, take a shower. Don't make it about you. It's not about you. It's never been about you. When it comes to fasting, it's about God. And so, you know, he's also saying, do you find yourself dropping subtle hints about the sacrifices that you're making to get little affirmations? Yeah, you know, I've been fasting from coffee. You know, you, what, do you drop that in? That's what he's getting at Here. I love the second half of the second verse of Taylor Swift's song called Antihero. And it's so honest because it gets at something. And I'm going to put the lyrics on the screen. And she says, did you hear my covert narcissism I disguise as altruism, like some kind of congressman? Tale as old as time. And what I like about this, is there a misprint? Or is there? Her point is smart. Her point is smart. Sometimes our altruistic tendencies can actually just be a cover for our desires for affirmation. Sometimes the things, you know, oh, I'm just doing the thing. We actually couch it or build it or slip it in in ways so that we get affirmation from others. And again, Jesus reminds us that that does not matter. It's never mattered. What matters is is that your Father in heaven can see you. Now, Jesus tells us these things not to beat us up. He tells us these things not to make us feel worse. And maybe some of you are sitting there and you're like, oh, I don't do those things. I don't fast. I don't give. And I don't pray, but I can never admit that. I pray once a week. God, please help me win the lottery. He doesn't do these things to beat us up, to make us feel worse. He's obviously encouraging us to do these things. But really what he's getting at is he's expressing how different his kingdom is. What he is doing in this moment is an act of mercy to you and to me. Why? Because he wants to loosen the grip of seeking approval and what that does to us. He's saying that he wants to free you that in his kingdom, as you follow him, there is freedom from the pursuit of building your life around what other people think. Imagine that. Now, I don't know how much you seek the approval of others and at what level, whether it's a parent, whether it's a child, whether it's, you know, a faceless amalgam of someone that you respected in high school I don't know how much you seek the approval of others, but my question is still relevant for anyone on that journey. What if you sought the approval of others just a little bit less? What would that do for you? Wherever you are on the journey, what if you were just a little bit more free from the potential judgment of the opinions of others? What would you do with that freedom? How much extra time would you have in the day not dwelling on, not meeting the expectations of people who currently aren't thinking about you or or who never think about you? What would you be inspired to do? What bold choices would you be inspired to make if you cared just a little bit less about what people thought of you and more about appealing to your Father in Heaven who loves you and who offers you life? If I had to wager... Vegas odds. If I had to wager, do you think your life would flourish more or do you think it would flourish less if you made choices about your finances, about your spirituality, about the sacrifices based on what your heavenly father thinks more than what you think might satisfy the temporary opinions of others? Do you think your life would be fuller and happier? Do you think you'd ever experience more joy? I think that you would. You see, the promise that Jesus makes here, if you choose to apply it, is that you will be rewarded. There's reward attached to it, and this is what God does for us. He offers us a reward, and I don't always think that the reward is clear, It's not like if you give X amount of dollars, you should expect to get X amount of dollars back in your bank account by a certain amount of time. We don't think that way here. It doesn't always correlate to discipline, but Jesus makes it abundantly clear that you will be rewarded by seeking his approval. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to take out your phone and write down these three disciplines. Give, pray, and fast. And then next to each word, um, if you have an iPhone, uh, you have notes. Uh, and you just open that, and you write, give, pray fast, and then next to that, you do a little dash, and you write down one thing, one new way you'd want to implement these disciplines in your life. Why? Because, they're, first of all, they're good for you. They're good for you. I love the size of the church, like you cannot get away without getting out your phone. Uh, <laughs> anyway, because these disciplines are good for you, because you'll be rewarded by God, and because these disciplines bring freedom. These disciplines bring freedom. They create the right kinds of conditions for us to flourish. And when we flourish, we can help others to flourish. Okay? And this is what I know of you today. You already have what you're chasing. The thing that you want. The approval that you need. In fact, the approval that you were created to receive. You already have that in Christ Jesus. That God, your Heavenly Father, wants to draw close to you you already have what you're chasing you already matter to the one who matters most the only one whose opinion actually matters he sees you and he knows you so chase after the disciplined life and the flourishing life will chase you back can we all stand